Welcome to Deeper, a podcast by Wollongong Baptist Church. Join us as we take the plunge and dive deeper into God's Word, the Bible. Here, we'll unpack and examine further the Bible talks presented on Sundays across our three English-speaking services. Today, we'll be thinking through more from our latest instalment in our series from the Gospel of Luke as we consider what it looks like to be a radical disciple of Jesus. So, let's get right into it and dive deeper. Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of Deeper. My name is Grace Jones. Um, Today marks our final installment in the series Radical. Um, As you would already know, we have been working our way through chapters 13 to 16 of the Gospel of Luke. And today marks our final um, installment, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through to 31. Uh, This was preached by Rod Bailey on the 5th of April and Rod joins me now. Welcome back, Rod. Great to be here, Grace. Um, can you just give us a bit of a recap of your talk from Sunday? What was the main message? Um, what were the points, etc.? Yeah, the big question that I had was, why do our earthly actions affect our eternal destiny? And I answered that with three points. Um, firstly, because God observes all our actions. Secondly, because God judges us after our death. And then thirdly, an expansion on that second point, because God's judgments are fair and final. So I guess the focus in this passage is really on money, um, similar to previous week's passage. And I think that's because money was the Achilles heel of the Pharisees who were listening into this teaching that Jesus was ostensibly giving to his disciples, but was really geared, I think, increasingly to the Pharisees, particularly this last parable uh, now in that chapter. And so the focus is on money, but it's more broadly about the Lordship of Christ. Um, and extending that to every area of your life. So uh, the principle, I guess, of um, being generous in how you use your wealth is is just one aspect of how you live as a Christian under the kingship of Jesus. And can you just remind us quickly, too, of how Jesus goes about talking about um, all of this? What's the story that unfolds? Yeah, so in this passage you have uh, the famous parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Um, Interesting story because uh, the rich man would have been named usually in Jewish society. The poor man's name you would not have got, but it's flipped. And so we have this unnamed rich man and Lazarus who's just ignored by this rich man all his life. And then surprisingly when... um, they their life ends at least for the pharisees listening in and for the rich man in the parable who's kind of a picture of them Um, he's shocked that he's in hell and that lazarus has gone to be with abraham in heaven and so there's this um i guess great reversal and a sense in which um they're the usual norms whereby jewish people would think that somebody who was wealthy had been blessed by god and somebody who was suffering or poor was cursed by god or was undeserving in some way and that was why they were experiencing is shown to be not true at all that our experience in this life does not reflect um, what our eternal destiny will be it's rather how we live in this life and respond to um, the needs around us Um, ultimately we know it's through faith in jesus that we um, are received by god or not Um, but it's showing how the pharisees thought that they could um, be friends with God, see themselves as genuine, um, uh, obedient 
uh, followers of the Bible or the Old Testament scriptures at that point, and yet at the same time love money. They had this sort of double life, this belief that their daily activity didn't affect um, their religious standing because they were Pharisees. Cool. Well, um, those of us who've had a keen eye might have noticed that we've actually skipped over a couple of um, annoying little verses <laughs> in between last week and this week's passage. We've been um, very meticulous in working our way through chapters 13 to 16, but there are one or two little verses that we did skip over. Um, why? What are, what are those verses and how do they connect or not with our passage from this week? Yeah, so we didn't really address, um, yeah, we finished last week's passage in verse 15, and so we've left out 16 to 18, which is this little section that talks about um, the law, in particular uh, about um, physical adultery and divorce. And it just seems a strange little segue between uh, this whole section on money and then an illustration, really, of this issue of money when he goes to Lazarus and the rich man in this parable from verse 19. So I just sort of skipped over that on Sunday to make that link between uh, the two sections on money and our the lordship of Jesus over that aspect of our lives. But there is a link. Um, the thing to be aware of is at the start of Luke's gospel, he says, I am writing an orderly account. And so the idea is that all of this makes sense and links and it's not just random. And so some commentators will say, oh, this bit's just um, you know, some random sayings that have just been thrown here, which throws out the window the idea that Scripture is you know, authored by God ultimately and that Luke is trying to write an account which all makes sense. So the way to understand it is um, you know, they, the bits connect even though commentators find them tricky because... There's a question of a new stage of God's redemptive plan. Um, Jesus talks about how um, the law had been there and the prophets had spoken up until John the Baptist. But now with his coming, which is the, you know, the arrival of the Messiah, the gospel being preached, it's like he's foreshadowing that, hey, now we're in a new era, a new stage of God's plan of redemption. But that doesn't mean that the law and all that had gone before is suddenly thrown out or that the law is unimportant. Um, we'll see as the New Testament unfolds that sacrificial requirements are not you know, things that bind believers today. But the ethical teaching is still the same. You know, what is said in the Ten Commandments still applies to a believer and how they should respond. So I think his point is twofold. One, he's um, saying to them, he's picking on an area which was um, divorce and remarriage, which the Pharisees and a lot of the religious leaders in the first century were quite blasé about. They would um, find any excuse, if it suited them, um, to allow divorce so that they might remarry. Um, and so that was a denial, really, of the law. The law didn't um, allow for that, but they interpreted it in such a way, particularly a passage from Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, that spoke about marriage, that Moses was somehow giving permission for anyone to divorce whenever they felt like it. Jesus um, pointing his finger at that, but he's also pointing to the fact that you know, on this issue of money again, they thought that they um, addressed it well or that it didn't relate to their spiritual beliefs. But of course, there was lots of teaching in the law on money, which they were also ignoring. So it's a kind of point that Jesus is saying, well, um, there's an authority that comes with God's word that isn't lost with his arrival. And in fact, they had been ignoring uh, parts of the law when it came to marriage and when it came to the use of wealth already. Um, and then he goes on to illustrate particularly the issue of wealth as he goes into the story of Lazarus and the rich man. 
Well, thank you for that. Um, okay, yeah, so let's, let's talk about the story of Lazarus and the rich man. A couple of questions, I guess, from within the text. Um, why, does, why does the rich man call out to Abraham? Um, and then the beggar is also carried off to be with Abraham. Why is Abraham given such a big profile in this story? Why not God himself? Yeah, it's a good question, and it strikes us a lot more uh, than it would perhaps a Jewish person reading this in the first century because you know, Abraham was the father of the nation. Everything begins with him. Genesis 12, the promises God makes to him, uh, the descendants will follow from him. And so I guess in their mindset, uh, this would make sense in that He's the father of the nation, and it perhaps indicates that Lazarus has a position of honor at the heavenly banquet. We've been hearing about the heavenly banquet in the previous chapters in this section, as we've looked at uh, Luke 13 to 16. And so to be at the side of Abraham in heaven is kind of a position of honor, which is all the more striking given that he's been the beggar at the gate, ignored by this rich man. Um, but I think the other thing that's perhaps even more important is that it speaks of relationship. You know, Lazarus was a true child or son of Abraham. But of course, a lot of the Jews just thought they were a spiritual son of Abraham or descendant of Abraham just because they were born in Israel. But Jesus makes that point clearly a number of times, as the rest of the New Testament will, that just being born in Israel doesn't make you a true follower of God. And so there was, um, you know, the rich man still appealing to Lazarus it's ironic because he's appealing uh, appealing to Abraham rather as if he's a true son of Abraham and that Abraham might respond to him and yet he's ignored the law and ignored um, you know Lazarus um, Abraham is known in the Old Testament for his hospitality as well and so why is the rich man appealing to Abraham when he's failed to show any hospitality um, there's also a sense too in which um, uh, it's not only ironic um, that he's um, appealing, but it's also presumptuous um, because he's ignored Lazarus all his life. And here he is in Hades and he's asking Abraham to send Lazarus like he's his servant to come and do something for him still. So he still sees himself as in the right standing with God. Um, so uh, I think it's all that element that brings in Abraham, um, showing that the Pharisees and others often look to Moses and Abraham as those that gave the law, the father of the nation, and that they had a right standing just because they did certain laws or were born in the nation. And this is just showing how far he is now from Abraham and how Lazarus um, is by his side. And well, it's interesting the amount of um, detail we get about the conduct of the rich man. Um, but there's such little mention of the type of life that the, be the beggar actually lived, uh, which seems sort of strange to have a parable discussing heaven and hell while also not making much of a mention of how the beggar arrived in heaven? Yeah, I think we would like to think there'd be just a, one more sentence there and says that the beggar um, trusted faithfully in God each day and prayed or something. And we think, oh, you know, that was how, you know, he, he went to heaven because of his uh, trust in God. But we're not given that. I, I think that's because uh, he's really a foil in the story. He's simply a counterpoint to the rich man. So the parable is more about the assumption of God's blessing by the wealthy, money-loving Pharisees um, than about the beggar and how he was saved. So the issue is that you can't be um, you know, having a double-minded approach like the Pharisees do, um, and you claim to love God while loving money, which was Jesus' um, statement in verse 13 in the previous passage. So the Pharisees had to grasp that their daily life 
um, impacted on their eternal destiny, that they couldn't have a religious compartment for their life and say they were devoted to God and then ignore the beggar in their midst. And so really the whole angle of the parable is against the rich and their mistreatment, their lack of generosity, their lack of compassion uh, for anyone but themselves. All right, well, that was the text itself. Now we're going to think through, I guess, um, how it relates to us a little bit more. Um, In your talk on Sunday, you said, salvation is by grace alone, but judgment is on the basis of works. Um, Does Christianity then adhere to some kind of form of karma where we're being repaid for our actions? Yeah, it's a good question because I think some people can feel like that. Um, But no, the Christian belief and um, the way these things fit together is very different from a Buddhist worldview Um, and so how so well uh, firstly uh, the foundation of true justice as I was mentioning uh, in Sunday's sermon is exact retribution that is um, God is all-knowing all-seeing and he will fairly judge each human simply on the basis of their thoughts their words their actions they're not going to be judged on what anybody else has done simply on their own life And so God's judgment is only right and fair um, because he looks at what we do. Um, We'll only be brought down, as it were, or condemned by our very own words and actions. Um, Now, we can think, oh, well, God's got to repay us somehow. This sounds fatalistic. Um, But we're not repaid if we're in Christ. I mean, that's the beauty of the gospel. Um, As God's judgment has already fallen on his son, Jesus, Jesus bears the punishment that we deserve. He stands in our place if we've placed our faith in him. And so salvation by grace is wonderful because it's undeserving. Like our work should condemn us. We are sinners. We do fall short of God's standard. We should be repaid, but we're not if we're in Christ. And that's not because God's overlooked that sin or somehow pretended it never happened. No, he's punished it in full in his son. So Jesus has borne that. So we don't need to take the punishment. It's already been taken. Um, But certainly there's a repayment for those who never receive Christ because then they will be judged on the basis of their works and they'll be found to have fallen short. Um, So trying to stand before God and hold up your life and tell God that you're good enough and he should receive you into heaven because you're a good person will seem very empty on the judgment day. And that's why we need to run to Jesus now while we have time. Uh, So should we be living in fear of judgment? Yeah, so I guess it begs the question. um, No, we shouldn't be if we've trusted in Jesus. Um, Rather, so the danger is we can hear all of that and think, oh, okay, my motivation for um, living now is fear of all the bad things I've done being brought to account, even though I know I'm going to be saved if I've trusted in Christ. And so I want to be a good person then just because... um, I want to have a small list of things that I've done wrong in my life or something, like I'm uh, the naughty child having to report to my teacher or whatever it might be, my parent. Um, So that shouldn't be the motivation. Um, What should be the motivation is God's grace. So if I've understood God's undeserved favor to me, then in response to his love, I want to live a life that honors Jesus. So I'd actually desire and long to live in ways that please him, not because I'm trying to earn my way, not because I'm in fear of the judgment day, but because 
I'm motivated by the mercy and love God's already shown me. It's just natural for me to now want to live for him. If I continue to live for myself, having known his grace, then have I ever understood it is the question. Now, we'll all fail and struggle, and we won't be seeing perfection in our lives this side of heaven, even with the help of the Holy Spirit in us. Um, but we have to strive for that because I, I long to please God with my life. Uh, well, last week we talked about money, and you said already that this passage um, largely condemns um, the wealthy and how they use their resources. Um, but is it wrong to have wealth? And how should we use our wealth? Yeah, it's a good point to recap what I guess we considered in more detail last week. And the answer is no, it's not wrong to have wealth. But how should we use it? Well, generously, um, making sure that it doesn't usurp the lordship of Jesus. The problem is if we're really wealthy, then we've got a heavier responsibility to use these things because it's not our money. God just entrusts us, as we were talking about last week, whether it's our skills or time or talents or the wealth we have. They're all just gifts from God. But if I've been given a gift in any of those areas, particularly in the issue of money, then I have to be a really careful steward of that. Or what will happen is it will creep into uh, the place of God. It'll usurp God and suddenly be sitting on the throne in my life. So I just need to be so wary if I've been blessed with much. Much easier to be poor in that sense and have less to steward. Um, But if I am wealthy, then I have to make sure that I'm honoring God with everything I do. Um, and not what he gives me. So I think it really comes back to Romans 1, where uh, Paul's critique is that people are worshipping created things rather than the creator. And so to worship money or to be leaning on that for my comfort or security is to be making an idol out of that, and that's pushing God off his throne, as it were. We need to picture that all the time. Is my bank account suddenly pushing Jesus off the throne of that image in my head? And if so, then I'm in danger and I need to deal with that. I'm not being a steward of it. It's, it's owning me rather than me mastering it. Uh, well, finally, for this particular passage, how has this part of scripture impacted you, Rod? Um, what's God taught you through it? I think on this issue of um, the coming judgment, um, it has reminded me again how often I've been struck by 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. And there's an identical verse almost in Romans 14, 12 about we'll all have to give an account of our life on the judgment day. And, and that doesn't cause me to be fearful, as I was saying earlier, but rather spurs me on. And I think, well, how am I living my life now? It, it should make me keep reassessing all the time. I think our danger as Christians is we get comfortable and we just sort of drift into complacency, and then we're not assessing our life and our walk. And so we start doing things and think it's okay because we're just in this mode Um, So I think it's spurred me on to appreciate God's grace all the more and and to keep seeing that I'm not here to serve myself, but I'm here to serve God, and a big part of that is serving others. Um, So I think it should drive us to other-centeredness. It should drive us to worship. Um, And so often um, those things get lost in the day-to-day of just the tasks we're doing or being caught up with my own life or whatever it might be. Um, and so just having the right eternal perspective is just so important so I'm a big fan of the Puritans as they're just one of you know the heroic sections of church history that I love but what was great about them is they spent a lot of time in reflection on heaven and you know they'd spend an hour each morning doing that and that just seems bizarre almost to our culture today like um, but I think 
you know, as a result, they had the right outlook on so much of what they were doing. And I think that can help us too. Um, whether that's just meditating on scripture, whether it's praying, but reflecting on what is to come um, and putting the now into perspective. Thanks. Well, as I mentioned at the top of this podcast, this is the end of this series. And so I thought it it would be helpful maybe to take a moment and just to zoom right out and think about um, the series as a whole. We've traveled quite a distance um, since we started back in chapter 13. Um, Across this series on the podcast, we've talked at length about a whole range of different things, um, including the kingdom of God, Sabbath, legalism, hospitality, evangelism, the lordship of Jesus, uh, being authentic in our faith, the cost of true discipleship, God's heart for the lost. Um, we've talked about money and now we've talked about heaven and hell. And so that's that's a huge amount of things that we've covered in quite a short period of time. Um, but what has stood out for you across the series? What have been um, the standout lessons? Yeah, it's certainly been a real challenging section of scripture, which is why we call it radical. Um, and I, I feel like um, on all of these topics, and there's been so many of them, as you mentioned, that there's such a challenge. But I think the catch-all theme from that list um, that you just read out is probably the Lordship of Christ. Um, so much can fit under that heading. And I guess the thing that struck me again about that is just how radical and uncomfortable Jesus' teaching is on all these topics, which all relate to us as his disciples and whether we're actually living for him. Um, So I think the expectations of a disciple are just so high from what Jesus is saying, and I don't think that should threaten us or overwhelm us or make us think we just got to give up, it's all too hard. I think what it should drive home to us is the true cost of discipleship. So that's kind of the crescendo of this section at the end of chapter 14, where it's the take up your cross section, which Mark preached on a few weeks ago. And so I think the big theme through it all, I would say, is the Lordship of Christ. The big response for us to get from all of that is bearing the cost of being a true disciple. Um, and so I think that's the big thing that I've found, and it is so challenging. So I've had to keep thinking as I've heard these things, uh, am I feeling comfortable in this area? Because if I am, then there's something wrong, because this is very uncomfortable teaching. Um, so I think Jesus doesn't allow us to just sit um, comfortably. He's always going to push us forward and challenge us. Oh, well, what's the one thing then that you pray about? Uh, for the people of our church that they would walk away with as a result of this series? Yeah, well, I guess just following on from that, I guess my prayer would be uh, that we are thoroughly convinced that there's no such thing as a half-baked disciple of Jesus. It just doesn't exist. Jesus only wants people who will take their little crowns off their heads and truly submit to his lordship. I think what this means is that um, my Christian walk cannot be business as usual Uh, we're always going to be uncomfortable if we're following jesus jesus is always going to be stretching us he's never going to let us be complacent um, because we can't have jesus on our terms he's always going to want to have us on his and rightfully so and so until we reach heaven we're in this never-ending battle or struggle uh, against our sinful nature and our desire for self-rule where we just sneak back up on the throne again. Um, And Christ is just going to be chipping away at us through the work of his Holy Spirit. 
um, to conform us to his likeness. And so rather than um, feeling that's an impossible mountain to climb again, uh, this is a challenge that we've got to embrace. This is the normal Christian life. I think our danger is that we begin to believe the normal Christian life is just where, you know, I do a lot of things my way and I just want to be comfortable. I want God to give me an easy passage through life and my family to go well, to live in a nice house, to enjoy all the surroundings he's blessed me with. And and what I'm describing, if I find myself, you know, drifting into that, is just about me being God. Um, that's not the lordship of Jesus. That's just, you know, my comfort in this life. Um, so we can't live that way and claim Jesus as Lord. And I think we're closer to the Pharisees than we realize. That's our big struggle. Um, you know, the Pharisees in this passage were just like that, and we like to look down on them. But they thought, well, why can't I have a comfortable life? Why can't I love money? And I'm, you know, I'm a keen follower too of God, and you know, and I, I give attention to His Word occasionally. Um, you know, once we we hear how bad that sounds, and then think, is that happening in my own life? Then I think that will save us from. Yeah, the threat of just drifting into this complacent, self-oriented faith. Wow, well, thank you for that. And um, thanks to you and the other pastors for leading us through this series. Um, yeah, we pray that it's been really helpful to you and that through it, um, God will help each of us to become uh, increasingly radical disciples of Christ. Thanks for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to Deeper by Wollongong Baptist Church. We'd love you to join us at any of our services this coming Sunday. For details and to hear further content, please head to our website at wollongongbaptist.org.